I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, that's BCG's think tank for new ideas in strategy and management. This is the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we try to bring important new ideas and books to the attention of executives. So I'm very pleased today to be joined by Martin Ford. He's a futurist, a multiple best-selling author with several books on technology. He's also the founder and CEO of a Silicon Valley-based software development firm. He just wrote The Rule of the Robots, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Everything, which is published by Basic Books in September of this year. And I look forward to discussing that with you, Martin. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Let me kick off with an interesting analogy you give. You say that AI is a bit like electricity. It's a sort of utility. What do you mean by that? And what are the implications of that idea? Well, what I'm getting at there is that I think artificial intelligence is ultimately going to have the same kind of reach and scale that electricity has in the sense that it will touch virtually every aspect of our lives. It will scale across every sector of the economy. There really isn't anywhere that will get a pass on this technology that won't be impacted by it. So you can imagine what your life would be like for a single day without electricity. I think we will reach the point when the same will be true of AI, and that will be true in every context, your personal life, your business life whether you're running a company, whatever you're doing, it will be an absolutely critical and ubiquitous resource. So that's what the analogy gets at. Of course, there are also critical differences. You know, utilities like electricity are commodities, right? They're very stable. They don't change over time. So 10 years from now, the electricity that you access will be the same as we have today. Obviously, artificial intelligence is dramatically different from that. It's going to be a vastly more dynamic force that is going to have the reach and scale of electricity, but it's going to be immensely more disruptive. So that's an interesting statement to a strategist. My, my thing is business strategy, because electricity doesn't really have a competitive advantage. It may have a disadvantage if you don't use it, but it's, it's ubiquitous. So the competitive advantage comes not by merely using it, but by doing something interesting with it. Would that also be true of AI? To some extent. I mean, again, there are differences. You know, electricity is a, a commodity that powers other innovations. Whereas artificial intelligence actually encapsulates, you know, intelligence. It actually encapsulates a labor-saving technology, for example, within itself. So, you know, there are not direct comparisons there. But on the other hand, I do think that over time, clearly artificial intelligence, machine learning, those technologies are becoming more ubiquitous and commoditized. You know, the cost of the actual technology, the software, is actually going to be driven down over time and become more and more accessible you know, easier to use. So it may be true that for companies that are in tune with AI and are investing resources in it, it may be get harder over time to derive a competitive advantage there as the technology becomes more widespread. But at the same time, it's also true that a company that falls behind in utilizing this resource is clearly going to be out of the picture. You say something about temporary advantage in the sense that you say in the short term, advantage will probably flow to companies with massive amounts of data because we need that data to feed AI. How does that data-based competition work in the short term? Well, the way it looks is that right now, in order to achieve the kind of results that we're seeing with artificial intelligence, you essentially need two things. The first thing you need is massive amounts of compute power. And of course, the sophisticated software that's been developed, the neural networks and, and deep learning systems and so forth. Again, those are becoming relatively commoditized. And the way that they're becoming accessible is primarily through cloud computing, right? So companies like Amazon, Google, Microsoft are competing to offer these cloud services. They're competing against each other to increase the capability of their AI offerings 
And as a result, that side of it, the technology side of it is becoming more and more accessible. But the other component that you need is massive amounts of data, and in particular, data that is well formatted for you know, what's called supervised learning. And putting these two things together is what creates the value. But the argument I'm making is that because the technology itself and the computational power is becoming much more accessible, the differentiating point is going to be access to that data. And therefore, the companies that derive the most value from this technology for the foreseeable future probably are going to be those companies or organizations that control vast amounts of this data. When we talk about AI, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're talking about a very particular technology. We're, we're talking about multi-layered neural networks and backpropagation, one particular technology. And undoubtedly, there'll be progress as that rolls out. But I wanted to ask you about the, the next wave of fundamental technical innovation. Should we anticipate further progress in the, in the algorithms and techniques of AI, which will unlock different types of applications? For example, you just talked about the the need for data being dependent upon supervised learning. You know, is that an inevitability or will we see progress on that front towards unsupervised learning or reinforcement learning? Yeah, I think we're going to see enormous progress in the future and there are a number of paths that we'll take. It's important to note that, I mean, AI as a field has been around at least since the 1950s. And for most of that time, it really didn't have the emphasis that we have today on neural networks, deep learning, and so forth. It's really only over roughly the past decade. The inflection point was around 2012 that deep learning really came to the forefront and it became evident that this technology combined again with much faster computers as well as vast amounts of data was really producing the kind of results that have really made the last decade probably the most consequential period in the history of artificial intelligence. But over the course of this decade where we've seen this disruptive advance, most of that progress has come about simply by scaling up these artificial neural networks. So primarily, it's been faster computers, larger neural networks, you know, deep learning systems, and more data. Those things are what are really driving the progress. But it's becoming fairly evident that that particular approach is, is really not sustainable. For one thing, is extraordinarily expensive. We're already at the point where large deep learning models that are really producing the most advanced results are, you know, tens of millions of dollars and is scaling up kind of exponentially. So so you can foresee if it keeps going like that, it's going to get to billions of dollars. And at that point, it's not affordable even for the largest tech companies. So we're going to need different types of breakthroughs. I think conceptual breakthroughs in order to continue this moving forward. And certainly one of the most important areas is what's called unsupervised learning, where rather than using supervised learning, which is the technique that, that is probably responsible for 95% of the practical applications of artificial intelligence that you see today. And that basically involves taking data that has been very carefully annotated or labeled, you know, categorized by essentially by people and using that to train systems. And that's very effective, but it can be, you know, limited and expensive. What we would hope to do is eventually to build machines that can learn in the way that human beings learn. If you think of the way a child learns, you know, almost from the time a baby is born, the child is learning essentially by his or herself, right? Just by interacting with the environment. It's not a supervised learning technique where a parent is sitting down and, and providing thousands of examples to that child. Rather, the child is, is able to learn in a very holistic way. And that's sort of the promise of artificial intelligence. And we do see some progress there. But it's, it's going to be a lone trek. And then there are other critical breakthroughs that we're going to need, too. For example, common sense in machines is another area where there's a need for progress. So there are a number of hurdles that need to be overcome 
in order to push this technology ever closer toward human-level intelligence. You talk about the different application areas in the book. For instance, you say that we'll fill AI in the factory sooner than we fill it in the home. But interestingly, you, you single out as being one of the most promising applications of AI, the most impactful as being overcoming what you call the innovation plateau. Could you explain what you mean by that? I think we have this sense that things are moving very fast and we're seeing lots of progress. And that has absolutely been true specifically within the arena of computers and communications, right? I mean, we've seen, you know, just massive advance. Most of that has really been powered by Moore's law. But if you look more broadly than that, across all of society, the economy, across a range of technologies, we really have not seen an acceleration in broad-based technologies. Consider the cars we drive today. Fundamentally, they're not that different from the car you would have had in 1950. They are much better, of course, much more efficient, more luxurious, more reliable, all of that. But basically, the car we drive today is not fundamentally different from the car that would have been available in 1950. Okay, but now compare that 1950 car to the kinds of transportation that might have been available in, say, 1890. And you can see that the delta there, the difference, you know, simply no comparison in terms of the technological leap that took place over, over those decades. And it's virtually true in almost every arena. I mean, you think of, of airplanes, think of the innovations in, in things like vaccines, antibiotics, public sanitation systems public utility, electricity, water, and so forth. During that period of time, roughly from maybe the late 1890s up until, say, 1950 or so, we just saw this incredible explosion of progress across the board. And we really have not seen that in recent years. And part of the reason is that innovation in many of these areas has just gotten a lot more difficult. There is no Moore's law for aerospace engineering, for example, right? Which is why we haven't seen, you know, jet aircraft accelerate to science fiction spacecraft, right? But I think that what we're going to see is that finally now we're, we're at the point where we're beginning clearly to apply this massive increase in computational power that we've achieved. And we, we begin to see that, for example, the development of NRA vaccines, for example, relied obviously on computational power, not so much specifically on AI, but on this vast increase in our ability to, to compute we're already seeing technological breakthroughs happening as a result of that. But AI is the next step. AI is, I think, ultimately going to be an amplification of our intelligence, of our creativity, of our ability to innovate. And my hope is that that's going to drive innovation in a much more broad-based sense. And help me to understand how that works, Martin. Is it that we can just search more possibilities with AI so we improve the productivity of the innovation process? Or is it that AI begins to support creative rather than, you know, simply deductive or routine applications? How does AI potentially break the innovation plateau? Right. It's, it's in all of those areas. Certainly the specific applications that we're seeing right now do involve searching through many possibilities or understanding massive amounts of data. I think the single best example of that, the thing that, that really put artificial intelligence, I think, kind of on the map as a technology that it really is going to lead to a lot of innovation was the breakthrough you saw just a few months ago from DeepMind, right, with their protein folding system, which is actually the example that I, I opened my book, Rule of the Robots, with, because I think it's that important. But essentially, what's known as the protein folding problem involves looking at the genetic recipe for a protein molecule, the thing that is encoded in our genetic code. And based on that, trying to determine how the actual molecule, once that sequence of 
amino acids is put together, how will it fold into a three-dimensional shape? And that's something that happens organically within microseconds of when you know, the ribosome in a cell creates the, the protein molecule. And of course, it is the geometric shape of the protein molecule that determines its function. That's why it's critical. And so there are techniques, very expensive laboratory techniques that can be used to analyze protein molecules and figure out the shape. But what scientists have been striving for for at least 50 years is a more, you know, a computational way to do that in a much easier and less expensive way to determine these shapes and therefore the functions of, of the protein molecules. And DeepMind was able to solve that problem. It required two iterations of their technology, but over the process of three or four years, they basically solved a 50-year problem in science. And they are now in the process of creating essentially, you know, a dictionary of all the the important protein molecules, thousands of them that are important in, in biotechnology. And that's going to be, you know, an enormous boost to science and innovation. Okay. So in that case, then it was solving a problem, which was bottlenecking innovation, I guess. Interestingly, though, also in your book, you, you talk about something that pulls a little bit in the opposite direction, which is you make the seemingly counterintuitive point that AI could actually reduce economic productivity if we don't get our policy responses right. Could you explain the idea there? Right. The single issue that I've written and thought the most about is the potential impact of artificial intelligence and robotics on the workforce. In other words, specifically the potential for a lot of jobs to be automated, many other jobs probably to be de-skilled so that what was once a well-paying job that required a fair amount of skill and experience can now be replaced by a minimum wage worker or, or a gig worker utilizing technology to get the job done. And so as this sort of scales across our economy, I think it has a number of implications. Now, economists that look at this and ask whether we're seeing this impact of automation across the economy tend to be quite skeptical. And the reason, one of the most important reasons that they're skeptical is that they look at the productivity figures and they see that productivity is not soaring, right? Which is what they would expect to happen if in fact the robots were coming online. And the reason for that is that Productivity is a ratio. It's got a numerator, which is the value of the output, and a denominator, which is the number of hours worked. That's what labor productivity is. So the economists look at this and they say, well, if in fact jobs were being automated at a rapid clip, then the denominator of the productivity function should be basically heading towards zero as, as human hours worked becomes lower, and therefore the ratio itself should be exploding. And that's not happening. The point I make in the book is that one of the possible reasons that we're not seeing that happen is that there's also an impact on the numerator of that equation. Remember that the numerator is output, the amount of economic value that we create. And yet within the context of the market economy, we don't generate output unless there is demand for that output, right? No business will continue producing output if there are not consumers out there that are demanding that and have the ability to pay for it. So as technology essentially makes things more unequal, as it drives down wages for the bulk of population, as we see wage stagnation for the bulk of, of people across the economy, as you know, a few people, in particular people who have you know, strong skill sets and own lots of capital are doing very well, but the bulk of the people are really kind of being left behind. And definitely we see evidence of that in the economic data. What that means is that there's fundamentally less demand out there for for these products. So that can actually reduce the potential for productivity growth because there simply is not enough broad-based demand out there to support scaling up production. Right, that's an interesting argument. So you're saying that there is an impact on, on productivity 
but that comes along with degrading jobs or eliminating jobs which reduce demand, which, which may therefore suppress the value of the output of the improved processes or whatever. Is that, is that essentially the argument? That's right. Because again, no business is going gonna, is gonna to produce output for which there is no demand. I mean, we're primarily living now in a service economy, right? And that's especially true for services, which, I mean, you can't inventory services. I mean, in theory, you could continue to produce widgets, even though no one was buying them, at least for a while, but you can't do that at all with services, right? So this idea of having broad-based demand, I think, is critical. And it's important to note that it's not just about aggregate dollar demand, right? You can put Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and Elon Musk together in a room, and there's a lot, in theory, of demand there, right? They have often an infinite amount of purchasing power. But between them, they're not going to buy, you know, a thousand smartphones or a thousand cars, right? I mean, unit demand also matters, right? It's critical to, to really all of the industries that are the backbone of our economy. So it, it's important to have a reasonable distribution of income and therefore purchasing power in order to have broad-based demand in the economy. It seems to me that experts and commentators are divided on the employment impact of, of AI. Some talk about a, a temporary dislocation, which will be compensated for later on. Others point out that historically, the lost jobs are always more visible than the gained jobs. But in the end, we, we add new roles that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And there are others like yourself that are saying, no, it's going to be a profound and broad-based disruption. What would be your argument that the, the optimists about the, the creation of net new positions might be too optimistic in this particular case? Right. I mean, that's really the crucial question here, which is, is this time really different, right? Which is always a dangerous assertion to make in, in economics. But what I would say is that the reality of why this time is likely to be different goes right to what we were saying earlier about artificial intelligence being like electricity, right? It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be a genuinely systemic technology that is going to scale across everything, including every employment sector. Now, if you look at the impact of technology and automation historically, sort of the classic example you can give is, is the mechanization of agriculture, right? You used to have at least half of the workforce in the United States at one point was working on farms. Then you had this technology, tractors, combines, and so forth come in, and most of those jobs evaporated, right? Now it's like maybe 1% or 2% of our workforce is engaged in agriculture. And of course, that did not result in permanent structural unemployment. What did happen, though, is that you had temporary disruptions, but you also had, at the time that happened, a rising manufacturing sector, right? So those workers eventually moved into factories, and they found jobs there. Later on, you saw automation and offshoring come to manufacturing, and now workers have transitioned once again so that they're primarily working in the service sector. But what you have seen is that technology, first of all, has kind of tended to impact on a sector-by-sector basis, right? First agriculture, then manufacturing. But the other thing you've seen is that most workers, and I mean, I'm talking about maybe roughly half of our workforces tend to be engaged in things that are on some level fundamentally routine and repetitive, right? And what people have done in, in response to these technological disruptions is that they've moved from routine jobs in one sector to routine jobs in another sector. So think of someone doing routine work on a farm in 1890. Now think of someone doing routine work in a factory in 1950. And now today, think of someone doing fundamentally routine work, maybe working as a cashier in a Walmart or stocking the shelves in a Walmart. So these are all jobs that are basically routine, repetitive, and predictable. But they're entirely different employment sectors, completely different jobs. 
Um, and that is what has happened in response to technology. But now we have coming on board this technology that is going to make virtually any kind of work that is fundamentally predictable and routine, you know, essentially evaporate over time. So if you're going to argue that workers are going to adapt to this and that new jobs are going to arise, then you have to argue that a fundamentally different kind of transition is going to happen and that people are going to move from work that is primarily routine and repetitive and predictable to doing things that are fundamentally non-routine, maybe more creative and so forth, things that literally cannot be automated. And absolutely, many people will successfully make that transition. But the two questions there are, number one, are there really going to be enough jobs to absorb the potentially tens of millions of people that are going to lose this more routine work? And secondly, can everyone successfully make that kind of transition? Because maybe it's going to require being more creative. Maybe it's going to require having very sophisticated interpersonal skills to do the kind of work that requires you know, building deep relationships with people, which is something that obviously machines, at least so far, are not, not yet good at. So those are the kind of jobs that are likely to be relatively safe. And I think we run a real risk that a significant percentage of our population is not going to be successful in making that transition. And that's essentially what I'm arguing. These social impacts, not just the employment impact, but also privacy and uh, reinforcement of bias and all of the other potential social negatives or impacts that come along with AI, I guess none of them are inevitable in the sense that it depends upon things like how we regulate the application of AI. Is there a best approach to regulating AI and what sort of regulatory innovation will, will that require? Right. So as you say, there are definitely a number of areas where we need regulation. And I'm a strong advocate of regulating particular applications of artificial intelligence where that's a crucial thing to do. And you, you know, one area that you mentioned is the, the issue of bias, for example, in high stakes applications of artificial intelligence. So AI systems that screen resumes have been shown in some cases to be biased on the basis of gender. There are AI systems used actually in the, in the legal system, in the court system that have been shown to be biased on the basis of race for example, and used to determine should someone be released on bail, these kinds of questions. Same thing with AI used to approve loan applications. These are very high stakes decisions that impact people. And, and it's clear that they need to be fair, right? There's a place for regulation to ensure that these technologies can be audited to make sure that they're fair. Some areas of applications of AI, like self-driving cars, are already subject to regulation because they intersect with an existing regulatory body, the Department of Transportation. Same thing with medical applications and the FDA. But there are a lot of other areas that are kind of falling through the gaps. And I do think that we need to take this on. I believe that probably the most effective way to do that would be to create a new agency, you know, an agency specifically focused on regulating critical applications of AI that are not covered by other existing agencies. It would be something like the SEC or the FDA or the Federal Aviation Administration, but it would be an agency that would have specific expertise in artificial intelligence and would be able to formulate regulations where, where they're crucial. So just like the FDA has deep expertise in medical applications, for example, and health applications, this agency would have the necessary expertise in artificial intelligence in order to do that. I don't think we can rely on Congress or any parliament in any country to have the necessary expertise and to be able to move rapidly enough to regulate this, this technology. So I think that's probably the best approach. 
You work in the tech industry, and I'm not sure whether you'd agree with me that technology seems to be having its moment of truth and its relationship with society. A somewhat utopian image has given rise fairly quickly in recent years to a lot of concerns about bias and uh, impact on our democratic processes and so on. Do you think the tech industry as a whole is on top of that increased social concern, both in the point of view of making sure that we get the right regulations and also maybe more proactively in terms of making sure that technology is seen as contributing to human progress overall, attacking our major common issues like climate change and so on? How would you read the reaction of the technology to increasing social concern and what do you think is missing from that response? Yeah, I I definitely think that there is kind of an awakening on the part of the tech industry about the extent of power and influence that that they have, right? I mean, what you saw in the 2016 election was one thing, and the latest news coming out of Facebook, the impact on children and so forth of these technologies. I think that even for the people that work at these companies, the executives running them, it's it's been kind of a, a shock to truly understand the impact of the technology that they've created. And I think that to some extent, there's going to be a willingness, maybe even a desire to offload some of that responsibility onto the government. That's one way, in a sense, of evading the limelight to some extent is is pushing that responsibility. So I do think that there's absolutely going to be a willingness to see more regulation and, and push that responsibility over to the other side. Again, I do think it's important to regulate specific applications of of these technologies more generally and and specifically artificial intelligence. But what I definitely would not want to see is is overall regulation or stagnation of the field itself. I wouldn't want to see regulation of artificial intelligence research actually pushing the field forward because I you know that is I think crucial to our future, to our ability to innovate and and solve the problems that we're going to face. We're also in an absolutely critical race with China in terms of these technologies. So anything that we did to actually slow down progress in artificial intelligence, I think would be very negative. That's one reason also I'm not generally in favor of breaking up the big tech companies, because I think one thing that's obviously clear is that scale has advantages when it comes to development of these technologies at the forefront. And it's pretty clear that China is not going to break up Tencent and Baidu and and all those leading technology companies. So if we want to remain competitive, we need to have our you know, major tech players engaged at the forefront of, of this technology as well. So unfortunately, we have limited time today, Martin. So let me just ask one more question. So putting yourself in the position of a CEO of a maybe a non-digitally native company that's looking to get their arms around AI and not fall behind, it's, it's a daunting agenda. So many things to think about, the, the algorithms, the data, the talent, the applications, the social side effects, and so on. How would you suggest that leaders think about this transformational agenda of making sure that they're embracing AI with sufficient speed and embracing it for advantage? Well, certainly, I think every business of any reasonable size should have one individual, one top executive that is is really trained on this issue, whether that's the CEO or, or whoever. But there definitely needs to be a point of focus within the company that understands that this is going to be a uniquely consequential technology. But beyond that, it needs to be disseminated throughout the organization. You know, I truly believe that in the same way that human resources is a critical component of any corporation, maybe the most important for for many companies in terms of managing their people, you know, artificial intelligence is almost going to rise to that same level. It's going to be sort of a unique resource within the company that's going to have to be leveraged and managed and built into the business model, essentially. And I think that the entire top management team and certainly 
one or a few individuals who are truly focused on this area are going to have to be instrumental in, in making that happen. Do you see companies make repeated mistakes as they approach this topic? I'm talking again about the legacy companies. Are there fallacies and, and traps that you see playing out? Well, I think it varies across companies. Some are obviously more sophisticated than others. But the basic message is that, again, all of this begins with data. Data is the resource that, at least for the foreseeable future, makes the utilization, the leveraging of artificial intelligence possible. So the first step in having an effective artificial intelligence strategy is to have a good data strategy, right? To really make sure that you are managing and accessing the data within your, your company making sure that it is accessible. So that's the first step. And I think the companies that do that first are going to have a huge advantage in terms of leveraging these technologies going forward. I think it's important to have a very practical approach to that and understanding and not simply be getting caught up in hype, but rather looking at how this can actually be used to to improve your, your business. So thanks very much, Martin, for spending time with me. Thanks for your insights and congratulations on the book. I've been talking to Martin Ford about his new book, The Rule of the Robots, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Everything, published in September 2021 by Basic Books. Thank you again, Martin. Thank you for having me.